Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Okay, hello and welcome back. I've got a special guest with me today, you guys. Um, on the other side of this screen is Yvette Cantu-Schneider. She and I met because of Kathy Baldock, whom you guys have all seen Kathy's interview with me. Um, so Yvette is here. You also might recognize Yvette if you've watched the documentary Pray Away. It was about conversion therapy, reparative movement um, that a lot of gay people were subjected to at a certain period of time, especially here in America. Yvette was heavily involved in that world. Anyway, Yvette, would you care to introduce yourself to the world? I know you've obviously done a lot of things. What are you doing now? I, I have some idea, but I think there's still some things that you're involved in that I don't even know about. Who are you? What are you doing here, Yvette? Thank you, first of all, Mike, for having me. And right now I'm working at Canyon Walker Connections with Kathy Baldock as a project manager. And then we're starting a publishing company so that we can publish more books like the type that she's writing. So we can further move towards full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church. I've written a book called Never Not Broken. I have another one in the works right now. And, you know, just doing a lot of things like that. And Kathy and I are really focusing now. Once she, once 1946 comes out, the movie, and Kathy's next book, then we'll focus more on speaking engagements and talking to high school students. So I'll tell you a little bit about my past. I started working for Family Research Council back in 1998. I worked there for a number of years until I got married and had kids. And then I started a ministry called Living in Victory. And with that, I worked with athletes, mostly female athletes, with Athletes in Action, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, so women who were struggling with same-sex attractions. And then after that, I became the first, and as it turns out, only Director of Women's Ministry for Exodus International. My audience might not know who Exodus is, would you mind giving an introduction to that whole organization? So Exodus International was the largest ex-gay ministry in the United States. It had a reach that was worldwide and it was an umbrella ministry. So different ministries would affiliate with Exodus wherever they were. And they were usually ministries that were part of churches. So the churches would have ministries and then they'd want to have you know, like a governing board, which was basically what Exodus was. And there were certain rules and certain standards in order for one of these ministries to join. In 2013, that's when it ended. But it didn't end. It wasn't like it was just suddenly over. In 2013, like half the leadership broke off and started Restored Hope Network. So it still exists. And then the, then the ministries that were under Exodus, they had the option of either just going out on their own, closing down altogether, or reaffiliating with Restored Hope Network. Mm. So it's not as if, you know, people talk as if, oh, Exodus ended. And so 
ex-gay ministries, conversion therapy, reparative therapy, whatever you want to call it, that ended. No, it didn't end. It's going as strong as ever. Okay, so how did you end up getting involved with Exodus? Well, Exodus came later in my career, but what happened was, I'm going to go way Yeah, back. listen, tell us the story. I want to hear the whole journey. I'm going to go way, way back. And Great. that was, I was raised Catholic and I just loved God. I just loved Jesus. I, my dad, I remember him teaching me how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I just felt such a connection with Jesus then and to tell him everything that was going on in my life and try to listen for him. It was just so exciting for me. And then I lost that somehow in my teen years were just so many disappointments, disappointed with God. Things aren't going the way you want them to in your life. And, and then I went to college, um, which I went to UC Irvine. I'm from Southern California. And then I spent a year in India at the University of Delhi. And that was around the time. I mean, I knew that I had same-sex attractions, but I didn't really think too much about them. In the culture and the atmosphere I was in, it wasn't something that you were going to run around and tell your friends about. <laughs> talk, really talk to anyone about right <laughs> and so I went to India and there I fell in love with a woman and it was very intense for a while but nothing could come of it I had to go back to California <laughs> stay in India but that's what really got me thinking this is really who I am you know, we had such a connection. I had never felt a connection like that with anyone and definitely not with young men that I knew. I came out when I got home. That was interesting because I did have gay friends. So I expected to be embraced and for everything to go well. And even some of my gay friends were saying, no, you shouldn't do that. You're going to go to hell. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? These are some of my gay friends who weren't even Christians just, you know, or they had been raised in a certain church, but weren't going anymore. And they're partnering with same sex people themselves. And they're telling me this, it was very shocking. But at the same time, you know, I did, I did get support and I was out and I went to gay and lesbian pride parades in West Hollywood and Long Beach and everything was great for a while. And then the AIDS crisis hit. It had already hit, but it really ramped up and was at its worst at this time. All in all, I ended up losing 17 friends to AIDS, including my best friend, Ed, who was from Argentina. And that was so hard. I was living with him and I was living with his partner and I was taking care of them as much as I could. And by this time, you know, I'm in my mid twenties. It was really a difficult time. It's hard to express how hard it was to just see so many people sick, sick and dying and dying in such prolonged agonizing ways. And that's when I started thinking about God again, but it was a struggle because I had been at the gay and lesbian pride parades where the Christians are holding up signs saying you're going to go to hell. So I'm thinking, how can I possibly go to a church? But I worked with a young man who said, well, my church isn't like that. Well, the, his church was like that. <laughs> they just didn't talk about it openly very much. So I went, but I didn't know this. I went to church with him. I sat in the back and I could just feel the Holy Spirit. I was just immediately drawn back in like, yes, this is what I've been missing. This is what I want. This is what I need in my life. I was really looking for some stability and a place to say, yes, 
this is where I belong and I can connect with God here. And that's what I did. And I made friends and everything was going great. I moved into a house that with seven other women, young women who were part of this ministry. And I was there, I don't know, it was maybe a year when the assistant pastor's wife took me aside and said, I see a spirit of homosexuality on you and we need to cast it out. So she and the woman who was my discipler, you know, took me to the house and cast the demon out of me and then said they were filling me with holiness. And it was a very humiliating experience. They were making it sound like I was a danger to people that somehow I had these seven female roommates who couldn't trust me, even though I had done nothing in the prior year to make anyone believe any different, you know? So, so they said that I had to go around and tell my friends and roommates that I was gay, but honestly, it's like, if I, if they've cast the demon out, then why do I have to go and tell them? Right. So I go, I tell my friends and some of my friends I had lost contact with over the years, but they saw pray away. And a few of them contacted me and said, you know, we were just as humiliated. We were humiliated for you that we had to hear this from you, that you had to confess to us about your same sex attractions. And, and so it wasn't just me who was hurt by this. It was the other young people in the church who just couldn't understand why this had to happen. And then they told me that I was under quarantine and that I couldn't do anything but drive to work and back, read my Bible and pray and couldn't talk to anyone, couldn't have contact with anyone, including my roommates who I've already told. So they're supposed to stay away from me. I I always think, why did I stay? But I did have good friends there. I did have strong connections, but it was this pull that I think a lot of people who are gay, same-sex attractions, trans, bi, have, where you want to hold on to God. You want to have your spirituality and your spiritual life still, but how are you going to do that without denying yourself? So then you're stuck, especially back then. Can I, I either have to deny myself and embrace God or deny God and embrace myself? And neither of those alone is a good option for right. most people. So you're stuck in this awful situation. And in, in our church, it wasn't easy to talk about any type of struggle you were having, because if you did, you're not leadership material. And I was going into full-time campus ministry at UCLA. So I couldn't really be open about anything that I was feeling or thinking. I had to toe the line mm. and I did toe the line. <laughs> So I started working in ministry at UCLA and there was the pastor who was over the ministry was doing some open air preaching there on Bruin Walk. And there was a crowd of people around him and they really started hammering him on being anti-gay. And he said, I'm not, I haven't even said anything about gay people. So what do you think? You know, you're this Christian. All we ever do is see Christians who are anti-gay. So tell us. And he didn't want to, he didn't want that to be a sticking point for whatever he was talking about. So he looks at me as I'm standing there and says, Yvette, and this is without asking me ahead of time, nothing. I did not know this was coming. I've, I had never said a word about this publicly to anyone. And he pulls me up so that I could talk to this crowd of mostly students and tell them that I used to be gay and wasn't anymore. So I was totally put on the spot. Anything that involves open air preaching is intimidating anyway. (laughs) Like, 
what are we doing? So I got up there and I could just feel my ears burning. Like I could feel me that I was turning red, but I did. I got up there and I said that I used to be gay and I wasn't anymore because that's what was expected of me. And this is what we said at Exodus too. It's like, if you have same sex attractions, that doesn't mean that you're gay. You're just walking out your salvation and fear and trembling. Like you're, you're walking it out. You've been delivered and now you're walking it out. So I never felt as if I wasn't telling the truth because the Christianity I knew wasn't that you didn't struggle. It's that you kept striving for and moving forward. And overcoming or resisting the temptation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So people will say, but if you still had sex attractions, why didn't you say that? Well, I didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I just have these overwhelming same-sex attractions all the time. It wasn't like that. Every once in a while, I would have a a crush on someone. (laughs) And then I'd think, oh, this is a problem. But otherwise, I wouldn't think about it. And so I didn't, I never thought that I was being deceptive in any way. Like, oh, you're telling people that you're not gay, but you are. I just wasn't thinking about it. And I wasn't talking about it. Through a series of events, I ended up speaking again at an event that was affiliated with the mayor's prayer breakfast in Orange County. It was called Christian Outreach Week. So they would, in different homes, people would have teas, what they would call teas, and people would come and have little cakes and teas, and then there would be a speaker, and it was always about overcoming something. So it could be God healed me of cancer, God healed me of my alcohol addiction, whatever, anything. And they asked me if I would come and talk about having overcome homosexuality. So suddenly it's like this ball started rolling and (laughs) he stopped a moving ball like that. So I went, I was at a house in Laguna Niguel and it was my first time talking about this at length. And I probably spoke for like an hour. And afterwards, there was this woman sitting in the front row. And she said, have you ever considered or would you consider relocating to Washington, D.C.? And I was thinking, what is she talking about? You know, we're in L.A., Washington, D.C. Why would I relocate there? None of it made any sense to me. And she said, I want you to come to my house and do this talk again. We'll invite a bunch of new people. But this time we're going to record it. We're going to video it. So I said, okay. And I did it again. And then they took the tape and sent it to Family Research Council because it ends up that she was on the board of Family Research Council. So for people watching, what is Family Research Council? So Family Research Council is the premier Christian family public policy organization in the United States. So it lobbies for anything involving the family and protecting Mm -hmm. the family with, you know, conservative values. And is it um, affiliated with Focus on the Family? or those It was birthed from Focus on the Family. Okay. Yes, because they wanted to have a public policy branch. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they started. So at the time, Gary Bauer was the president. And then he ended up leaving to run for president of the United States. And then he didn't come back to Family Research Council. Dr. Dobson, they were all, he was one of the people that started it. Or the person who started it. So I went there and I was supposed to be speaking on, like, I was basically 
a spokesperson for all of the family issues, but really what it boiled down to was coming against legislation that would benefit LGBTQ people. So hate crimes legislation, employment non-discrimination, same-sex marriage. At the time, that wasn't even considered anything. Like no one thought gay people would be allowed to marry anytime soon. Then it was civil unions. So I would go, I would speak at college campuses around the country. I would write position papers. Every Wednesday, I'd go up to the Hill and meet with legislators. That was do talking head interviews on the news stations, things like that. Yeah. How did you feel like being front running and like, did you feel tokenized? Did you feel honored? Like, what was your, how was, how were you? I felt that it was, I felt that it was God's calling on my life. I did go to my pastor before I left LA. You know, I told him about the job offer. Of course, he knew everything along the way because I talked to him all the time. But I remember going to his office and saying, is this something I should do? And he said, at this point, I feel like you'd need a sign from God to tell you not to do it. Like, this is what you were created for. This is what God wants you to do. So I have every authority figure in my life, everyone that I look to for guidance telling me, yes, this is God's call on your life. I went to a church where you were part of the church movement. You weren't just a Christian. You were a Christian in this church. So if you were to leave this church, you're outside of God's will because God has called you to this particular church, right? right? So it wasn't like I was going to say, um, you know, I don't really feel right about this. I'm just going to go to the church down the street. That wasn't how it worked. It's like, then you would be out of God's will. Mm. That's what I believe. That's what I had been told. I didn't stop to think, oh, I'm being tokenized, even though I was a woman. You didn't really see women doing that young woman. Uh, I talk about that in Pray Away that, you know, my dad was Hispanic. My maiden name is Cantu. That was the name that I had then. And so I was also a person of color, even though I might not look like a person of color, but my dad's, you know, being Mexican American. And that's what they wanted. So it was a woman because as they told me, they never believed that the gay men changed. So they would not be good spokespeople. And they always looked as if they were gay. That's what I was told. They saw that no matter what they do, no matter if they say they've changed, they always look gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, wow. And so I was attractive because I don't fit the stereotype of a lesbian. And that's what they wanted, even though I never did. So it's not as if I changed <laughs> if something about me physically changed. I've always looked the same way physically. I have never done anything that would that would label me as a typical lesbian stereotype. And mm. that's what they liked. That was key to the conservative belief system was that, look, if you tell someone that they can't be gay or that it's a sin, but that you don't tell them that they can change, then you're just being mean. Like that's where, <laughs> and that's how it had been. Like that's how it was before. That's how it was before the whole change movement began. It was, it's a sin. So you just can't do this. You can't do anything with someone the same sex sin. Well, we have these attractions. Well, you know what? Too bad. You still can't do it. And people had a problem with that. 
that people had a problem with, you know, there were backlashes, there were backlashes to Anita Bryant telling, you know, saying awful things about gay people. And I mean, she said awful things that I won't repeat. And that didn't sit well with Christians. And so then there had, there was a tweaking involved, which was, oh, well, the political side then, of course, is looking for, we need issues that are going to draw people in, especially Christians. And that's where they landed on, you know, the abortion issue. But the other issue was also gay people. But if you could say that gay people changed and there was this small group, Exodus, which it was first called Exit, and hardly anyone knew about it. It was just out of Melody Land and there was a phone line that you could call and get prayer. The religious right noticed it and said, oh, this is what we need. We need to prove that gay people can change, A, so that Christians can get on board and say, yeah, you know, what's the big deal? And so it's a sin. But if you tell people they can change and prove they can change, then there's no problem. You're not being mean. And at the same time, there was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where if there was a mutable characteristic, you could be considered for special minority, minority status. So there's another reason to say that gay people can change, because then it is not an immutable characteristic like race or gender. It's something that you can change. That's the reason they really the religious right and the Christian world really glommed on to this, yes, gay people can change. This had never been an issue before, like say, you know, the mid seventies, it was never something that people talked about or even considered. And then it became a good way to raise money and to bring fear into people's lives, right? Into Christians' lives. Oh, this could be your child. This could be this could happen to you. This is a threat. This is a threat to the family. And it's also maybe convenient that if gay people can change, then we're not just not being mean. We're actually not being the most compassionate. We're actually helping you. I've heard that come up a few times. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like so twisted. Oh yeah, because it's like, we love you because we know that you can change. And by telling you that you can change, that's our way of saying that we love you because we're saving you. The woman who cast the demon of homosexuality out of me also said, it's like if you saw a car driving towards a cliff and you start waving your arms to tell them the bridge is out ahead. So they may, you know, you may have some people who flip you off and some people who just blow past you anyway, but you know, you never know someone's going to stop and you'll have saved them because the bridge is out ahead and they just don't know it. So that was the analogy that she always used. And that's what we'd have in our heads. Like, oh, you're just saving people from the bridge that they don't know is out ahead. So you're saving them from driving off the cliff. Wow. And you know, that's fine and dandy. And that works well when you're at the beginning of a movement and you don't see the fallout of it. Right, right. It's not until you start to see the effects that you realize, oh, there's something wrong here. Well, I like also even the overreaching of, I actually know what's better for you than you do. I know what God wants for your life more than you can know, right? There's how disempowering, you don't know that's what that's going to end up producing in that person's life until years expose the cause and effect of that belief. And you're like, oh, it's just incredibly disempowering and so cruel. But Mike, you know what it's like in the church and you know how the things that we're told that keep us in place, which is 
trust in the Lord your God and don't lean on your own understanding. The flesh is deceitful above all things. So anytime I had any sort of a thought that this isn't right, there's a problem here, these scriptures were told back to me or right. I think of them and think, no, I can't think this way. There's something wrong with me. I have a rebellious streak. Right. There's something, you know. Yeah, you're not submitted, I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not submitting to authority. I'm not submitting to the word of God. So there's always a way just to keep you hemmed in. So people ask me, well, why didn't you leave? It's like, because I had a relationship with God and I was trying really hard to please God. And this is the way that I knew how. And it's not like we had a wealth of resources back then. It's not like I could just easily look something up on the internet or there were organizations or there's social media. Like there wasn't social media. There weren't ways to connect with people like there are now. Right. And there wasn't a wealth of information at our fingertips. Right. So that in the last like 10 years alone, just so much work has come out and been done. And yeah, obviously the connectivity piece for sure. So it was like a different time. You were living in a whole different world back then. Right. And there were no, you know, big tomes of affirming theology <laughs> right. and no one was really digging right. into it like that. It just seemed like, hey, this is the way it's always been. Of course, this is the way it is. Wow. It's right. always been a sin to be gay. And that's just what we believed. Wow. No idea. At what point did this stop being like, your line of work because something changed right you're working with Kathy Baldock now how did we go from this is your line of work and you're calling your passion what God is like asking you to do for the world to what you're doing now what happened okay so I did all of that with the women's ministries right then I started working for Exodus because Alan contacted me and wanted me to we had been friends for years I had gone to Exodus conferences for years and we'd always had a connection. And then I had worked also with focus on the family when they had their love went out conferences. And I was one of the original speakers there. So my involvement in the ex-gay ministry world was very large, even when I was working on the political side, I was still, still doing a lot of stuff on the ministry side. And then I was heavily involved in the Yes on Eight campaign in California. And that was sort of my last big thing that I did. And then I did the, the call at Qualcomm Stadium, Blue Angles. In fact, the call was the very last public event that I did on the Christian conservative side. People ask me, well, did you have doubts? I always had doubts. I always had doubts, but I always kept them in check. It, it was only just a few months after all of this happened that my youngest daughter got sick. She was five years old at the time. And it ended up that she had leukemia. So I had two daughters, five and seven. And we drove over the Sierra Nevada to go to Oakland. And she ended up in the hospital then for like four or five weeks. The whole treatment was two and a half years long. At least a year of that was spent in a hospital. And I lost it. Like I started just having panic attacks, mm -hmm. incredible anxiety where I could barely even breathe. I couldn't function at all. I, I would just be in the hospital room with her like, and these waves of panic would come over me and I couldn't breathe. I'd be shaking. And it got to the point where I was almost agoraphobic, like afraid to go anywhere, afraid to do anything. And so when we got back 
home after she was out of the hospital for the first time, I went to a therapist and I told her everything that was going on. And, and she said, this is normal for you to feel this way because your child is under threat. Like, of course you're going to feel this way. And she said, but from what you're telling me, it seems like you've had a lot more going on than just what's happening with your daughter. And she said, a lot of people end up with anxiety, panic disorders, generalized anxiety disorder, when they aren't living authentically. And she said, so I really want you to think about how you are not living authentically. She knew nothing about me. This was our first meeting. What? Your and first she meeting, just, she's saying this? She's saying there's something else. It's not just that your daughter's sick. I can see that you have had issues with anxiety prior to this. It wouldn't have just been this severe right out of the box. And you're like, what could that be? Yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I said right off the bat, it's my job. It's my job working at Exodus. And I took a leave of absence, which I, I had already taken a leave of absence because there's no way I could be working and dealing with a child who had cancer because that's 24-7. So that's how I got out. Like, I, just, I never went back after my leave mm -hmm. of absence. I didn't want to have that conversation either. Like I didn't want to have the conversation with Alan and Randy and then have them say, but Yvette, you know the truth and you know these scriptures and you know all of this because yes, I do know all of that, but I can see that this is not, you know, I can see the damage that's done. I've talked to enough people over the years to see no one's changing. There are definitely people who are white knuckling it and people who desperately want to change because they believe they have to change. But as far as seeing anyone change, nope. Okay, so question, your involvement with Exodus, did, were you exposed to people coming through the programs that were available and were you firsthand witnessing that people weren't changing? Yeah, it was firsthand witnessing that people weren't changing. When I worked for Family Research Council, I didn't have as much one-on-one -on -one experience. But then once I had my own ministry, I started having a lot of one-on-one -on -one experience with people. And I talked to hundreds of people because it wouldn't be so much I'd have one person that I'd work with for a long period of time. It would be the pastor of someone who was, say, a woman, young woman who's playing ice hockey in Poland, who's struggling, and they want me to talk to her just for one or two phone calls. That was sort of the thing I did. So I had a lot of contact with a lot of people, and many of them had been raised in Christian homes and did not want to lose their families, did not want to lose their churches, didn't want to lose their communities, and at the same time were absolutely miserable, just struggling. And knowing that there was this key part of themselves that they couldn't change and that they also couldn't embrace. And it was heart-wrenching because we had always been told that you will change if you're dedicated enough to God. You know, so if you're not, you're not praying enough, you're not reading the word enough, you're not, there's something that you're not doing enough of. And to see people who they were doing all of that. And they had been doing it for years and years and years, and there was still no change. We'd go to Exodus conferences and people would be weeping. There'd be puddles of tears of people during worship. And the comments afterward would be, that would be, that was so intense. Like, you know, these ex-gay people, they're just, they just really know how to worship. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. It's people who are so broken 
and so torn apart internally that they're just crying out to God for some sort of mercy. Like, just help me in some way. That's where the emotion's coming from. It's a re- it was really, really hard. Yeah. And even at those conferences, I'd sit out like on the lawn and talk to people between sessions. People were never saying, oh yeah, you know, I feel so great. Great things are happening in my life. It was always this, I don't know why I'm not changing. I don't know if you remember when you saw Pray Away that they had me in one portion offering commentary on this man, the young man who was up on stage and he says he's not gay anymore. And here he is with this fiance. It's like, I know what that is. Like there's such a thrill to be recognized as a leader. And once you're on stage, then you're considered a leader. You're a spokesperson of sorts, even if you only do it one time. So there's that thrill. And then there's the thrill of meeting someone you actually like is going to agree to marry you. (laughs) And you're excited about that, right? It's like this, it's not like it's someone that you don't like, like here's, and you're imagining I'm finally going to be okay with my parents. I'm going to be okay in my church. I've always wanted to have children and now I'm going to be able to have children. All of these are a big lure, even if you're gay and you're still gay, but I've seen it time and time again. It's like, then the years go by and those same sex attractions have not gone away and you're not fully fulfilled with person of the opposite sex, because Mm. that's not how you were created to function. And now what? Now there's another person that you've brought into this. Then you have to tend to and care to this whole other person. Yep. In the midst of you being divided among your, in yourself. Like, yeah, I'm just like, that would be so much to have to figure out and work through. Were there examples of people they were like propping up as like, you guys, this is the proof that there's evidence, you can, you're just not praying hard enough. Cause look, this is, evidence of the end result did you have like all of us I mean all of us who were leaders were those examples and we're the examples and and of course we're we believe it or we believe it to a degree like yes you can live like this yes you can live as a straight person yes you can have a family but we're also employed to do this and then you think well what am I gonna do if I don't do this (laughs) where am I gonna go What am I going to do now that I've invested so many years? Do I start a new career at this age? Do I go back to school? Where do I get the money for that? You know, these are the types of thoughts that would run through my head and other people's heads. Like, how do you, where's the exit? So when you heard that Exodus shut down, what was your thought on all that? Well, I knew that it was coming, you know, because there were some, you know, there were financial issues, there were problems within the organization, mostly that had to do with finances. And then there were people within who were split, like some really did want to be involved with the political side and some didn't. Well, it was definitely more lucrative to be involved with the political side because then you could get donations from people who had that sort of bent and the people who would say no, because we're hurting people with the politics. So we just want to do the ministry. Of course, hurting people with the ministry too, but that's not the way they saw it. Right. So, so there were already schisms that were, mm. that existed. From everything that I heard about why Exodus shut down, it was because they were looking at the results they were getting and 99.999% right, of whatever 
people weren't seeing change in their sexuality or sexual orientation or their attractions. Was that a major reason for shutting down or was it mostly like financial and like internal? Well, I I'd say it was a combination, you know, there, there was the financial side and then there was the people aren't changing. So I guess I want to take a step out of your story for a second and maybe ask you from your perspective on your opinion in this in a broad swath. Yeah. When it comes to sexual orientation, I mean, just people are being straight or queer in whatever way they are. Do you believe, I just want to ask you point blank, simplistically, just for the sake of the conversation, do you believe people's sexual orientation can change? No. I mean, I can't really be any more <laughs> direct than that. No. No. And that concludes part one of my two-part interview with Yvette Cantu-Schneider. We just laid the foundation. Part two is where things really ramp up, so be sure to check that out. If you're a queer Christian and you're looking for a place that's safe for you to reconcile your faith and your sexuality, the Rainbow Room is built just for you. I've provided a link below this episode for you to check it out. Hope to see you there, and we'll see you guys next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMayashiro.com.